This segment of the podcast is sponsored by Traveling Knees Experiences, here to help you create new memories one experience at a time. When you're comfortable and ready to travel again, contact Traveling Knees Experiences at travelingkneesexperiences.com. That's the word traveling, N-E-S-E, experiences.com. They are ready to create your next memorable experience. Thank you for joining me for episode 38 of the Water Word podcast. It's not lost on me that you could be doing anything else, but you decided to listen to your friend Ryan Sharp, host of the podcast, as I take you on this journey. And this journey today uh, is, is one you will enjoy, and it features my friend, Judge Trisha M. Farrell. Now I'll go back and forth with what I call her. I say Judge Farrell. She says, Ryan, call me Trisha because we actually are good friends. We went to the same law school. And you will note from her bio, which is in the show notes, that she has accomplished a lot in a short time. But she takes us on that journey. And I believe this is useful for individuals in any field, any pursuit but especially so for law students, aspiring lawyers. It's good to hear about Judge Farrell's journey. We actually recorded this on the day our country, the United States, was awaiting the results of national and local elections. And Judge Farrell was also awaiting confirmation of her own appointment for her third term as district court judge in Nassau County. Thank you as always for subscribing because that way when an episode is released and we do those weekly, you'll get it in your feed. For sharing, uh, it gives me a whole new audience and I am so appreciative of those of you who share a rating that gives me feedback. It lets me know that, you know, I'm encouraging, I'm inspiring. It, It blesses me in ways you can't imagine. Thank you so much. Uh, I have the best listeners in the world. Join me in welcoming my guest, Judge Trisha M. Farrell, to the Water Word Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, and I look forward to our conversation. So, Trisha, could you tell listeners a little bit about your background, place of birth, and your early childhood? I was born in the Bronx and my family lived there for a few years before we moved to Long Island, to Uniondale. And so I'm mostly a Long Island resident, Uniondale resident. My mom is from Jamaica, West Indies. My dad was from Georgia. So I have the best of two worlds. Wait, tell us a little bit about your early education as well. Um, well, I'm a proud graduate of the Uniondale Public School District. I went through all of the public schools in the neighborhood. And, you know, many of the people that I still see and interact with were friends from childhood. Do you remember if any of the teachers in your school, I guess as earliest as you can remember, Uh, encouraged you in the legal field? 
I can't really say that I had any teachers who specifically pointed me into the legal profession. Um, I do, you know, I recall that as a child, um, there was a dispute with some family over assets in Jamaica. And I was old enough to realize that the issue of a will um, was the cause of contention. The fact that the will had been changed at some point um, prior to one of my relatives passing and the distribution of assets um, created a great deal of controversy. And I knew enough from watching, you know, law type of shows and court TV with my dad um, that if they just had a good lawyer, things probably wouldn't have ended up where they did. So I knew pretty early on from elementary school that I was going to become an attorney. I think as time went on, my interests um, was focused on becoming a child advocate. However, while I was at City College in the Urban Legal Studies program, I was fortunate to have a internship at the Family Court in Westbury. And I worked with two great judges, Judge Joseph and Judge Medawar. But after the experience, I realized I might not be suited for family law because I was you know, posed with the question, about a particular case. I remember this, um, where there was a child that had a lot of bruises all over his body. Um, it was an infant and the mother was a stay-home mother. No one else came into the home and it was a neglect and abuse proceeding. And her testimony was that she didn't know, you know, what happened to the child. And I was just so angered by it at the time that you know, when the judge asked me, you know, what would you do in a case like this? My response was I would throw her underneath the jail and take her child home and care for her child. So, you know, after, you know, the judge discussed with me what his lawful options were, I realized that maybe it just wasn't something that I could fulfill if, if that's the um, direction that I wanted to go in. So as time went on, um, I ended up in criminal law, which that was something I said I would never do. Um, but God has a very strange way of, of leading us. Awesome. So if I could take you back a little bit, you were born in the Bronx. When did your family move? We moved to Uniondale when I was around, I want to say three or four years old. And that was pretty much a change for me because we had family in the Bronx. We didn't have family in Long Island um, with the exception of, oh no, we, I don't, I'm not quite sure when my Aunt Clover moved to Long Island, but that was pretty much our only relative. You remember Better why schools. Better schools, okay. Um, well, my, both my parents, I mean, it's interesting because my brother and I, we both attended um, private you know, preschools and they were great schools, you know, in terms of their reputation, but moving and, you know, just thinking forward for my parents, they wanted us to be in a safe environment and they wanted us to 
have a yard to play in, to live in a house because we're living in an apartment at the time. Um, and so their concern was our education, our safety, our well-being, and you know what our quality of life would be. So that is what pushed them to look into living in the suburbs. Um, they wanted a garden. I mean, they both grew up in you know a country and a state um, or communities where you know they were used to living off of the land to a certain effect. I mean, neither one of them were farmers, but you know they were accustomed to having fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. And so all of those things made Long Island appealing to them. And so that's how come they moved. So I, like I said, I think we were around three or four years old, you know, when we What, what were your parents' background? What did they do professionally? Um, interestingly enough, both of my parents, they worked at a nursing home together. So mom was a nurse and dad worked in security. That's where they met. No, they actually met at the City Tabernacle Adventist Church. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you have other siblings? You mentioned a brother. Are there any other siblings? Yes. I have a younger sister and an older brother. And recently, our oldest brother passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear Thank that. you. All right. And um, where did you go to high school? Uniondale High School. Oh, Uniondale. Okay. Yes, and, I'm true, tried and true, Uniondale, all the way through. I mean, I attended a preschool out here in Merrick, and after that, it was Uniondale schools throughout. What were the communities like, your neighborhood and the schools? Were they when diverse we, communities at the time you moved there? Yeah, Uniondale was um, very diverse when we moved here. Um, there has been changes throughout but we still have a diverse community in terms of just people from different countries. Um, we have different languages. We have diverse businesses. Um, but I do recall that, I wanna say towards the late 70s, early 80s, we did experience white flight. And I have listeners um, in different areas. Give them an idea of what the area, an idea of the area we are talking about when we talk about Uniondale in terms of so, population, yeah. etc. Uniondale is a hamlet. So we're not quite a village. We don't have our own um, police department. However, we do have, you know, multiple volunteer fire departments within, well, it's the Uniondale Fire Department. We have different stations. Um, it's largely uh, single family homes. We do have some apartments, not too many. And more recently, we now have um, increased number of senior housing. And the area of union deal that you're referring to is, um, is it Long Island or is it, is it Nassau County closer? Which, which area is that for those well, who are outside of New York? Okay. So Uniondale is, it's within the town of Hempstead, okay. the county of Nassau, and we are part of Long Island. So okay. Long Island comprises or is comprised of Nassau County and Suffolk County. Nassau is closer to Queens and the city. And so that's where Uniondale is situated. And tell us about the teachers that you had um, through 
high school. Um, and, and I would just ask you to uh, maybe highlight uh, maybe instances where you believed you were encouraged and inspired and other instances where you had to dig in to get ahead. Oh, wow. Um, so while I attended Smith Street Elementary School, they had a program called the More Able Learners Program, um, which would be considered an honors program for elementary school students. So I had two great teachers, um, Ms. West and Mr. Herman, who they encouraged us kids to be curious, to ask questions, you know, to delve into what we were learning. And the fact that we were given extra responsibility, extra work, and we were being challenged outside of, you know, the regular curriculum for that grade, um, I think it definitely helped with, you know, my confidence and being comfortable with being smart. Then I would say, hmm, I also just had teachers in general at Smith Street School who were very caring. Um, you know, I just think back to, you know, leadership skills. So I was part of the student council as a, as a child in elementary school, Ms. Maffetone, and, you know, she's still very much active in the community. So it's really nice to see, you know, someone that I grew up with, um, a teacher who had an influence on me, um, who still very much participates in the community and gives back to the community. Um, we're members of one of the civic organizations um, where I attend their meetings frequently. Uh, let me think. So I, I'd say that being in a nurturing environment and also seeing teachers of color at a very young age um, was just positive imaging, you know, as a young woman. Um, being able to just see yourself as I could potentially be a teacher and, and help to mold minds was something great. You know, I remember like one of my teachers, um, Mrs. Pope, who she was the physical education teacher, but you know, she was also a mentor to so many of us young girls. You know, she was one of those teachers where, um, I'd say she was like a cool teacher, but at the same time, you know, she also didn't mess around. She held us to standards and expected that, you know, if she gave you the responsibility of working with the younger kids in their gym class, take it seriously um, and, and take the responsibility as something, you know, to just allow you to mature and, and allow you to be an example for the younger kids. So I had some really great examples. I had a band teacher, Ms. D'Amico, who, you know, we were elementary school kids, but she was very serious when it came to, you know, music education. And we took great pride being in the marching band, participating in the Memorial Day parade every year. That was like, a, that's a big thing in our community. Um, and our band was one of the larger bands because she also um, was the band instructor for another one of the elementary schools. So when we came down the street marching, I mean, it's a massive amount of little kids and we had our little blazers and, you know, we were marching in step like Pathfinders. It was a, it was a really positive experience. Um, I also remember, you know, a time where my dad passed away while I was in elementary school 
And I had another teacher, Mr. O'Connell, and he, you know, he saw that. He saw that sadness in me and took, you know, the time to really just be there for me, to be supportive, um, because I wasn't always as expressive or talkative. I mean, I have my moments, I guess. I think as I've gotten older, I'm even more talkative than I was. Um, but he also picked up on those cues, even though there were other students in the class. So I've had some really um, nurturing, positive, um, encouraging teachers to help me, you know, throughout my earlier years, as well as, you know, Turtle Hook. That was my middle, well, it's a middle school now, it used to be junior high school, and as well as high school. My condolences too on the, the passing of your dad. I recognize that while it may have happened when you were in elementary school, we we never lose, you know, we still miss people who um we care about no matter the length of time. So my condolences and how was it Thank navigating, you. you know, and I'm glad the teacher in fact reached out um to you. How was it? Um navigating your other years of school did you were you distracted as a student at all um especially high school i can't say that it disrupted my academics you know not from what i recall you know i was part of the honor roll and the you know honor society so i still maintain good grades um, I mean, it was definitely challenging just in the family dynamic because now mom was focusing on three, you know, kids by herself. Um, but she did a phenomenal job keeping us in line. But I would say more so, I, I, I think it affected me. Um, it forced me to become more mature at a young age. Um, to face that reality of death and how, you know, things would be different not having dad around. Um, you know, God just did some phenomenal things for us because mom was always able to maintain us living in a nice home. Um, I never felt disadvantaged in any way, never went hungry, always, you know, well-dressed, well-kept. So. I would say it, it 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 more so had the emotional changes, you know, to my life more so than anything else. My mom really worked hard to minimize, you know, as much as she could how devastating it it, it could have been. You know, unfortunately, when you think about a single home, a single parent home, you know, it's reviewed as a statistic. And, you know, a lot of times that was kind of like the vibe that people gave off too, you know, where it's like, oh, the, you know, you just have your mom, that type of thing. But, you know, thank God I had my mom. And you're connected, you and I, to the faith community. Um, I don't want listeners to just assume that, you know, I don't want to assume they know that. So I'm telling them you, you and I are connected to the faith community. Yeah. How was the faith community in terms of your being socialized, your your coming of age? 
Well, you know, the thing about it is, as I mentioned, my parents, they met in church and they met in church in the city. So for many years, we were going back and traveling from Long Island to our church family at City Tabernacle. Um, however, when my father's health started to decline, that's when we started attending church in Long Island in Hempstead. And, you know, that was an interruption because I missed my friends. I missed my family. Um, you know, it was nothing unusual after church for us to go a couple of blocks down and visit my father's sister who lived there or, you know, 10 minutes away. Um, my mother's sister was in the Bronx. And so those routines drastically changed as he got sick. And eventually when he passed away, you know, there weren't as many trips to the city anymore. Um, and so it, it, it was difficult for me. Um, I will say though at Hempstead Church, um, I've met and made, you know, a lot of good friends, um, people that I am still friends with after how many years. Um, and the church also helped me to grow and mature spiritually. They found, you know, quite a few things for me to do throughout the years. So it, it, it keeps you grounded, I say, when you do have church activities, things to allow you to develop in a ministry um, to share your faith and, and to do so in an organized way. Awesome, awesome. And then when you left high school, did you have in mind a career path? When oh, you, yeah. Okay. What I were mean, those I, career I mean, choices? Like, <laughs> with, without question, I knew that I was going to be an attorney. Wow. From elementary school, I kept it in my heart and I knew, I didn't know you know, what area I would practice in, but I always knew I was going to be an attorney. The one thing that everybody said was you talk so much. And so I needed to have a profession where I could talk. <laughs> and I also like to help people. I mean, you know, throughout the years, even when my parents, I mean, I shouldn't say they never had a lot. Um, but I noticed that they were always, you know, caring for family and friends, doing whatever they could you know, for family and friends. And so that spirit was always in me. So it was like, I needed this profession where I could talk and use my mouth and I could help people. And it was always law. There were times where I kind of felt I would do, you know, law and. So the and was at one point, I wanted to be a pastry chef because I love dessert and I would bake a whole lot. Um, but after a while, it got to be a little tiresome. Um, and so I stopped the whole baking business. I mean, I, I didn't, I shouldn't say, I never had a formal baking business. It's just the idea of the activity, the hobby. Um, and then at one point I had become very interested in nails and I wanted to go to BOCES when I was in high school so that I could become a nail technician and I was gonna use that money that I made from my side business to pay for law school. However, because I was an honors student, my guidance counselor, she only allowed me to visit BOCES on a trip one day. She refused to allow me to um, use my credits to attend BOCES. And so I never lived that out. And where was college for you? Where did you go to college? 
So I attended City College of New York in Harlem. So that was a nice way to return back home. Um, City College was not too far from City Tabernacle Church. And I attended the Urban Legal Studies program at City College for my entire four years. Culturally, what was that experience like, like leaving home to travel to school and back? What was, how was Harlem in those, what, what is this, early 90s or what was? Yes, okay. early 90s. Um, oh my goodness. I loved Harlem. I still love Harlem. Harlem had food. Harlem had flavor. Harlem had culture. Harlem had history. Um, and it was like another home, you know, there were times that during my break at City College, I would just walk down to 125th Street and just, you know, go into the shops and, you know, just walk up and down. And there were, there were times that they would give away free tickets to the students for the Apollo Theater. So I had the chance to do that, which was, oh my goodness, so much fun. Um, so I enjoyed Harlem. And the campus community was like the UN. I mean, there were people from every corner of the earth and it was just a positive experience um i would say that a lot of our cuny schools they're like these gems that you have to discover because many of my professors were ivy league college graduates they were doctors with you know various degrees and whatever and so i felt i was paying for a Ivy League school on a public school's, you know, tuition base, if that makes sense. I mean, I just got so much out of that experience and I'm so glad I did not walk out with any loans. I mean, again, I have to, you know, say thank God for a fantastic mother because, you know, she was familiar with graduate school and how much that expense would be. So she did everything she could to make sure that I did not have a loan going into college. I mean, going well, leaving college and going into law school. Law school, on the other hand, woo, <laughs> that was my mortgage without a house. Wow. And that's telling that you say that. Walk us through your law school I guess your application experience, um, were you thinking of staying close to home even as you applied? You know, it's funny because there were a few schools that I applied to, um, one of which was very close to home, Hofstra. And I remember thinking it would be the perfect opportunity to have that non-commute because I was so used to driving back and forth to Harlem every day for four years, just about every day. Um, so I figured, okay, this is what, a five, 10 minute ride at best. And strangely enough, although they cashed the check that was in the admissions packet, I got a letter that said they didn't get anything. The package was incomplete. Um, but, I, and I'm trying to think what, what attracted me to Cardoza outside of their clinics um, was the fact that I knew I would get Sabbath off because, you know, I was very much involved in church. And so, you You're know, talking about Benjamin and Cardoza 13th and 5th or somewhere there in the lower Manhattan. Fifth Avenue, I believe is that the old address. Cause I think they bought like half the block now. Um, <laughs> but 
uh, Cordoza, one of the things that attracted me to their law school was, uh, aside from, you know, as I mentioned, the religious observance, I knew that it would never be a conflict with my studies. Um, they were well known for their entertainment law program. And so I felt <laughs> I was going to go to law school and I was going to learn entertainment law. I was going to have these clients that would invite me to different places because I was very much a social butterfly, very much like going to concerts and performances and parties. And so I was like, perfect. I'm going to go into this area of law and, you know, I'll be able to also have a social life. And I ended up becoming a prosecutor when I left. What was the first year experience like culturally? So this mm. is now law school we're talking about, where I, you were, by your own admission, doing well in City College. How well did you do in terms of grades at City University? I was, well, the Urban Legal Studies program was, uh, the program, I, I say the selling point of that program is that it was a pre-law program and an honors program. And they gave you the opportunity after three years of undergraduate studies to go on to Queens College and continue your three years. So they gave you the benefit of losing a year um, or, or if you will, gaining, um, you know, a, gaining a career one year faster than normal because normally you say four years of undergraduate and then three years of law school. Um, what happened is during my stay at City College and I did I did very well at City College, um, there was an issue with the accreditation at the law school. So I had to make a decision in my third year whether or not I was going to start applying to law school for Queens College admission, Queens Law School, or stay there and continue for the fourth year. And I struggled, I prayed about it, and I stayed there for the four years. Um, but I have no regrets about it because uh, based on Cordoza's reputation, um, it definitely opened up doors for me when I was looking for a job. Um, as I mentioned, I am a Long Island girl, so most of the attorneys that practice in Long Island, they tell you, Hofstra and Toro. So to be able to say I went someplace else allowed you to stand out a little bit, and it was to my benefit. A lot of um, principals and students listen to the podcast, and many of them are considering law school because, like, like you indicated, they may have family members who told them, uh, you speak well, uh, you love to help people. Law is the field for you to go into. Describe for us what first year of law school was like. So the first year of law school almost turned out to be my last year of law school. I hated law school once I got there. You know, I thought I was informed in terms of doing my research um, I did not go sit in a law school class prior to attending uh, Cordoza. I would suggest that someone interested in law school do that just to be able to understand what their, you know, what their environment and what their day-to-day -day is going to look like 
for the next three years because it's a huge investment. The only thing I can say is that I prayed a whole lot and I had a mother, like I said, she, you know, she's just, I, I can't stop singing her praises because she was my biggest cheerleader, but she was also my biggest threat. She was that, you know, West Indian mother that said, you're going to finish, you're going to finish, you're going to complete this goal. And then once you've done that, you can do whatever else you want to do. And I knew she meant it, you know, because she saw something, you know, in me that I didn't see in terms of just the endurance, um, the ability to hang in there. Um, and she was just such, such an encouragement to me. I mean, she never had any interest in law, you know, for herself personally, but she would sit up late night with me and study. Um, she would keep me company when, you know, I'm burning the midnight oil, two, three in the morning, still trying to finish the reading before, I, you know, class started, before I had to get back, you know, on the road to get to school. And so I know if I didn't have that encouragement and there were other people, you know, other family members and friends that were praying for me, I would not have made it. I hated my first year of law school. <laughs> uh, how, how were degrees, if you don't mind my asking? How was your first bad. year for you? I had never seen grades that bad in my entire life. So, you know, I went from being an honors student to a below average student, and it was, it was hard. It was like a, it was a blow. I mean, I had never taken so many academic blows ever. The only time I struggled in college, um, it was, I had a science class. Um, it was in a very big lecture hall. The teacher, you know, pretty much had this monotone uh, voice and he brought no energy to, you know, the subject matter. So I can't remember. I think that grade might've been like a B minus or something. And then, oh my gracious, I had a Spanish class where, um, the professor, you know, he felt that he didn't need to slow down the class because everyone else, most of the students in the class, um, were able to keep up with his pace. And, you know, I, I honestly felt I didn't belong in the class as an intermediate level Spanish speaking class because I had not taken Spanish for how many years, but I needed it to graduate from college. Um, and so when I was taking those tests, it didn't matter how much I studied, I was, oh man, those grades were whew, way below, way below 65. Um, but I ended up withdrawing out the class before it was too late, taking another class with a different professor, and I did very well in that class. But you know, with the exception of those two classes for four years, I was flying high. I graduated cum laude. So going into law school now and looking at a C on a regular basis, oh my goodness, C minus, man, that first year really, <laughs> my grades took a nosedive. 
And, you know, maybe just in terms of transparency, we can, because you mentioned an important thing, uh, sitting in law school classes before attending, getting that opportunity helps. But I think you and I could also admit that um, the thought process is a little different um, in terms yes, of yeah. maybe no right or wrong answer, but how you support it and yes. writing writing for law school exams if that if that could be its own class before getting in i think more students would do better if some emphasis was placed on that you know i did very well in legal research and writing and i have to say that largely the urban legal studies program prepared me for that um it also prepared me um, getting used to reading a case and just getting used to the language that many of the judges uh, would use because it, it's not like a casual conversation or reading a book. You know, sometimes the way that the analysis uh, is approached, I get, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe. But the same way how someone says they go into a courtroom and sometimes they have no idea what's going on, that's kind of like what I felt like on a certain level, even with the background that I had. Um, I am very grateful that I had, you know, some foundation because I would have been completely lost. But at the same time, as I mentioned, my program, it was a pre-law program, but an honors program. So I still went through, you know, regular courses where you know you're writing a time paper you know you're writing you know something or you know submitting like a couple of pages from a history class or a, or a literature literature class and so it is very different you know when it comes to law school and i would say you know just get rid of that um belief that you know you you you're gonna go in and knock it out the way you did you know, college, at least for me, I would say, prepare yourself to be average. That shouldn't be your expectation. You know, challenge yourself to do the best that you can, but don't beat yourself up for the first year because a lot of people struggle in the first year. Good points. Were you deflated after first year, seeing the grades? What was your um, feeling going into second year? I would well first year first semester that did it for me and then I had gotten um a little sick as well so it was like the stress of just all of it was too much and I remember um I was also working part-time and I remember my doctor saying you need to choose you know do you want to become an attorney or do you want to hold on to the job because you know it helps you with some of your expenses and stuff where were and you so, working? Um, I had a couple of different jobs, but I was working at LNG West Indian Food Restaurant and Grocery Store. Um, at one point, I was also working at Godiva Chocolatier. Um, so it was more so retail type of you know work. Kind of to, um, to to offset expenses type of work. It definitely was. Um, well, working at LNG, you know, that was being with family. Um, 
you know, my neighbor who was like, you know, another relative to me, she owned the place with her husband. Um, and so that was also another source of support, just encouragement and, you know, checking on me to see how I was doing, um, making sure I had food over the weekend when I'm studying. Uh, so, you know, it was great from that perspective, but at the same time, you know, trying to balance any work and your first year is extremely difficult. And I remember, you know, I th at some point, I think one of the counselors at the law school said to me that they didn't think it was a good idea. And eventually I had to come to terms with that. And you mentioned earlier the cost of law school. Was that also a source of stress for you as a first year student? Oh my goodness. I, I didn't even want to look at the statements because <laughs> the amount of money, you know, to attend law school was literally, it's literally comparable to a mortgage. And if, I mean, the whole time, you know, you're paying this off and you're saying, if I could borrow this for school, I could borrow this and have a place to live. I mean, you know, you look, you think about things in the long run. Um, and of course, it was something that I always had a passion to do. So, you know, I had to push through, but it definitely was a distraction, you know, at times because they're kind enough to send you the statements, even though you didn't graduate yet. And I'll never forget, you know, they loan it, you know, you hear people say Sally Mae. Um, I had subsidized loans and unsubsidized loans. And, you know, pretty much it's like the law school, the financial aid office gives you this package and they tell you this is what you qualify for and you know you have certain scholarships and stuff but it wasn't like i had thousands of dollars in scholarship money to truly offset um the expense but i remember before i got my diploma i was already getting statements saying that x amount was due you know per month and and I was crazy because I think about it, I started trying to pay it off, but the only, I didn't have an income. I had the loan money that was supposed to help support me through the time. And I don't know, I just, I was having some random conversation with my mother. She's, you know, and I mentioned the fact that, yeah, you know, I have this other payment. And she's like, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're not paying. Why are you paying them off with the loan money? You don't have a job yet. <laughs> so therefore it's not going to do too much for you to attempt to pay them off with the money that you owe them anyway. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, you do think about the um, financial sacrifice that it takes, but it's, if it's something burning in you where you're so passionate and you know this is where you belong, you just say your prayers and hang in there. Um, and it definitely, it's paid off. It has, I, I can't say it, it didn't, it did. We will return after a short break. So second semester, first year, was, was that a turning point for you? I did better. I felt more confident. But um, third year truly was my favorite year. Not just because I was graduating, but I was a member of the mediation clinic. 
And I had a professor, Professor Leela Love, who I, I think just as she dealt with us as professionals and, you know, soon to be attorneys, um, it helped give me the added confidence that I needed to prepare for the workforce, you know, because you're dealing with the studying and it's just all academic, but being in the clinic and having uh, cases before you, you know, it allows you to feel like a real attorney. I mean, I wasn't, um, mediation is a little different than what I do now, but some of the skills that I acquired, um, just dealing with opposing parties, uh, trying to identify issues, discussing um, matters with attorneys and, and, and litigants, and attempting to help them find a resolution were all skills that I carried over as a practicing attorney. Um, and even now as a judge, you know, I find that a lot of times I'm trying to use those mediation skills to promote civility in the courtroom. Patricia, walk listeners through what clinics are, because many may associate the word with the health profession, and then in particular, what is mediation? Okay, so a clinic is comparable to an internship, where, you know, more often, uh, most often than not, you're given either clients, as if you were an attorney, and you're being supervised by an actual attorney, or in our case, um, with mediation, you are the mediator. So a mediator is an impartial um, person who helps parties resolve various issues. They could be landlord-tenant issues. Uh, sometimes they're very close to criminal matters where it doesn't necessarily, for ex I, 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 let me give an example. It doesn't rise to an assault with the physical uh, interaction and an injury, but it might've gotten close to that where people are so, there's so much of an adversary that they're calling the police, but the police aren't making an arrest and there's some contention between the two. And the role of the mediator is to try to help these parties resolve whatever the contention is, whatever the issue is, but unlike a judge where you're making a decision and it's based on the evidence and the law and you are the sole arbiter with mediation it's encouraging the parties to come up with a resolution resolution that they both can come up with and you're just assisting them in that discussion assisting them to get to that conclusion um but you don't voice your opinion as to who you believe is right or wrong. Um, there are times where having a legal background helps because if the parties are so contentious, they may say, well, you know what? I just want to go to court. I want to go to court. Um, if you have the ability to give them the legal background based on whatever that contention is, they can realize that they may not be happy with a judge making the decision. And so the mediator um, can promote that win-win situation with the parties before they end up at the courthouse. So this is awesome because listeners are now understanding that law, the practice of law doesn't always have to be adversarial. Very often we are helping parties come together to 
resolve matters that uh, somebody may be walking with a piece and the other party walks away with a little piece as well. And, you know, we avoid cost and uh, unnecessary litigation costs, which is beneficial to parties. And that's just one small aspect, I imagine, of mediating. Oh, yes. I mean, over time, I've seen it expand. Um, so now in the unified court system for New York State, there is a huge push to resolve civil matters with the assistance of a mediator. So many of the small claims cases have the ability to be resolved with a mediator or an arbitrator. Um, and the difference of the two is that an arbitrator is somewhat of a judge in that he or she will listen to the case and make a decision as to you know who would be awarded what um but the parties would have to agree that it's binding um to allow that arbitrator to make the uh, determination but going back to the court system their alternative dispute resolution is something because you're seeing so many people involved in litigation and filing lawsuits that you know we've also in addition to obviously having the courts available having judges available um and judicial hearing officers available they now are employing and i want to say it's not just on a volunteer basis i can't say for sure but i believe that they have you know hired arbitrators and we have like specifically in district court where I am, um, there were local mediators uh, from the EAC helping to resolve uh, landlord tenant issues, as well as I believe small claims issues. How long was the mediation clinic? And listeners should know you're doing it in conjunction with your regular coursework for law school, correct? Yes. Um, it, it is a dedicated year for the program. Um, there were some, I, I want to say there might have been some students who were in the clinic for more than one year um, because I was just trying to manage. I really didn't explore clinics as much as I could have and should have. And I believe if I did, I would have been a more well-rounded student so I am, you know, very fortunate. I'm blessed that I had the opportunity before I left law school because it, it made me feel more positive about my experience as a law student, as well as more confident as a future attorney. Is it safe to assume that, and you, you used a perfect word, it made your experience a little more well-rounded because I think you went into Cardozo and you had the thought of maybe some entertainment law and the first semester, first year has a way of um, making <laughs> most law students get jaded. And then suddenly now you're in a clinic handling mediation matters and seeing that law, the practice of law itself is more expansive than you ever oh, That's so true. You know, um, one of the things that I did not realize you know, in terms of entertainment law is that it's not as glamorous as I thought it was. And it was a lot of contract law. 
which I thought contracts were completely boring. So after having, you know, you know, after entering into, you know, the contracts class, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine sitting down and going through pages and pages and pages worth of language, which oftentimes was so convoluted because one party was trying to get one up on the other and having to decipher what it really is that the parties were agreeing to. Um, I couldn't imagine doing that for years and years to come. And, you know, I don't find fault in, you know, attorneys that practice contract law or entertainment law because it is necessary. I mean, the reality is when you're coming to an agreement, people just don't do things with a handshake and a smile anymore. But it just, I wasn't suited for it. And so, you know, once I got, got that bubble bursted, <laughs> um, then it was, okay, well, now what? And in the midst of trying to figure out the now what, I also had to figure out, okay, will I be able to pay my bills with the now what? So, you, you know, you're considering all those things, um, but an internship or a clinic, because there were opportunities um, in both of those areas at the school, I, was, I would encourage anyone to, you know, just try. And I, it, it, it would help you to see, you know, see yourself, like envision yourself. What could I do or what would I do? And it also helps you figure out what I won't do, you know. And I, I think back to the internship through the Urban Legal Studies program at the Family Court in Westbury. I realized, no, I, I don't want to do it. It's just not for me. At least back then it wasn't. So third year now, what are your plans? The bulb is lit. You've uh, ex been exposed to mediation. What are you thinking now in terms of work? Are offers coming in or are you actively looking for work third year? So while I was at Cordoza, strangely enough, there was a job posting, not a job posting, it was a scholarship slash summer internship program at the Nassau County Supreme Court. And, you know, the law school, most of the students are from the tri-state area. They were living in the tri-state area. So it was very, it was rare, extremely rare that you get anything focusing on Long Island. Um, but I found it, I applied for it. And Thankfully, I was selected as one of the recipients for this uh, summer program. And I had the opportunity to work with a Supreme Court judge, uh, the late Judge uh, Thomas Phelan. And he had a law secretary, which in essence is an attorney that works for the judge. Um, now, um, Judge Nate Muscarella. And they exposed me to the Nassau County court system outside of family court. What and was the position you were selected for? I was a summer intern. Summer intern, okay. And was the rules defined going in or did it expand as you served? So I, the, it was, I mean, they said that you would have the opportunity to work with a judge, to um, do legal research and writing for the judge, to draft, uh, decisions and also to sit in on court proceedings and I was able to do all of that and what was so great about that experience is that you know the judge 
he definitely invested in me. So the following year when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, you know, between he and his law secretary, now Judge Muscarella, you know, they were, you know, looking for, you know, things that I could do. And it led me to work for a land use and zoning firm for Chelly Swartz. And it was a great experience. I had no interest in, you know, land use and zoning, but they were so passionate about what they did. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed, they were very much um, detail-oriented attorneys. Um, you know, it was a matter of the client and doing the best for the client. And so that gave me ex experience in an area of law, like I said, that I had no clue how that worked and why, you know, how, how that had any impact, you know, on society, if you will. But then I would go to some of these hearings where you had different zoning boards here in Nassau County because you can't build certain structures or you can't expand certain structures without going through a zoning board. And so I learned, you know, how come certain areas are designated commercial areas versus residential, whether you can get a variance, which means um, in essence, you, you get permission just to do a particular project. And so it was so interesting and they paid very well. So that was also another positive experience that just started as a result of interning for the judge. Um, and then after that, um, Mr. Forcelli, he had taken an interest in, you know, my professional growth. And he was the one that encouraged me that if I wanted to work in Nassau County, because as much as I love this city, I did not love the commute. So he then suggested that I apply to the district attorney's office and the Legal Aid Society. Um, and just to give a little background with his experience in Nassau, you know, he explained to me that many private firms are not going to hire attorneys you know, straight out of law school passing your bar because they don't have a formal training program. So if you had not received any prior um, experience, whether it be a clerkship or an internship, um, it was rare. You know, you had to be able to, you know, hold your own rather quickly, taking a case and being able to handle it from start to finish um, and not necessarily having the same supervision you would in, an office like legal aid or in an office like the district attorney. And so he had said to me, you know, you're, you know, you seem like you are a talker, you'd be a litigator. And he encouraged me to apply to the district attorney's office. And that's how I ended up, you know, getting into the world of criminal law. I had no intention on doing it prior to that. What are, who are land use? and zoning clients are they individuals are there individuals or um corporations um both actually you can have someone who maybe wants to um expand on a house or they may have property and they want to build another structure on the property so that's where it's the individual at the same time you can have a client like a nursing home where they want to build additional um, structures on the property they currently exist on or a business that wants to expand and there might have been certain um, 
you know, limits in terms of the density of the building at the time it was originally, um, you know, constructed, and now they want to expand. So their firm handled both private individuals as well as corporations. Tricia, I think what you have done, um, maybe intentionally, is you raised an excellent point about what leads most young people into desiring to become attorneys. The family saying, you speak well, you love to help people. And you've also highlighted what can also happen during one's first year. And then third year, you expanded on just how wide and broad the field of law is, coupled now with your earliest experiences with the, the law firm that handles land use and zoning. And now you've suddenly been encouraged to become or apply to the DA's office in a totally different field. Tell us about that journey now to this point. What's happening now with that application to the DA's office and your so, You know, in, in the prior to applying to the district attorney's office, I had been applying to small firms and small practices, sometimes solo practitioners, because I really said, if I do anything, I'm just going to settle for being close to home. It'll be cheaper. Um, and I won't have the, you know, the taxing uh, trans transport issues back and forth, because as much as I love the city to go out and to eat and to worship, you know, I didn't like traffic. I didn't like the subway. So I just felt my quality of life would be better if I was closer to the suburbs that I, you know, know and love. Um, but it really wasn't, there wasn't, it, there wasn't much happening with that. You know, you, if you even heard from somebody, it was more so like, oh, you know, we appreciate your interest in our firm, in our practice. We're not hiring at this time. And, you know, Mr. Forcelli, I'd say he definitely was, um, he had a huge influence in just opening up my mind to consider doing something else. Because as far as I was concerned, I would never do criminal law. I was so naive about, you know, the day-to-day -day of a prosecutor's, you know, work that I thought, okay, I'm going to visit, you know, people in the jail too. And at some point I, I did end up having a visit of witness in jail, but that's more so the work of a defense attorney. Um, but I just said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. But he had encouraged me and said, no, this is a great way for you to learn. Um, you know, you're a people person and you'll get the training. And I undoubtedly did. I mean, there are supervisors in the district attorney's office who, you know, taught me more in, you know, a training class than I did in three years of law school. From your experience in the DA's office, and how long did you work in the DA's office? I was there from 19, what was it, 1998 until 2005. So a little, or close to seven years, or a little over, close to, close. What assumptions do people make about district attorneys? And, um, you know, I, I'd ask it this way, what, what assumptions do people make that are unfair? 
I love that question better. <laughs> that mm. aren't fair about district attorneys. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because I remember, you know, as a young woman in the district attorney's office, the assumption is you're helping to bring down the man. Um, or, you know, you're working for the man to help bring down the black man. And, you know, it was having to defend what I did. Um, and I would say more so to educate because when something happens, we typically call the police. After you call the police and someone's arrested, now that you are the complainant or the victim, you expect justice. That's what people generally say. So someone's going to call you and talk to you about the case. You are a witness to the case, but you don't drive the case. The prosecutor drives the case. Sometimes it'll be in conjunction with the police officer or the detective involved in the, in the case, but it's not like people, so-and-so versus the defendant. It's the people of the state of New York. And, and, and it is important to understand that you want someone as a prosecutor to respect your views as the complainant, as the witness, as the victim. Uh, you want someone who's going to take the matter seriously and not be dismissive of what it is that you are stating happened to you. Um, you wanna know that the person is hardworking and they're not going to just push a case off as another one in the pile, that they're gonna be conscientious in how they handle it. And so my feeling was what better than, you know, your neighbor, because someone who lives with you, someone who worships with you, someone who went to school with you, they more so are going to have a value of who you are as an individual and not just see you as another victim, another person. Um, and so I did find that I had to kind of promote the positive side of being a prosecutor because everybody doesn't, I mean, if everybody went to jail that got arrested, we would not have space. So, you know, you also want to think about it, even from that perspective, you might be charged with a crime the prosecutor makes a recommendation to the judge as to what that sentence looks like. Does he or she have an opinion to see you for something more than another docket number? You know, and I found that, yeah, you, you know, I definitely had to do some, I guess, quote unquote, selling to allow people to understand there's a value to having uh, someone that you know, someone that you're familiar with, as a prosecutor and and also just to educate people on the system because so many people have no idea i mean you know we see so much happening in society right now but you know even when a case goes for i'll, I'll give an example a case goes into the grand jury it's a felony case something that's more serious misdemeanor cases very rarely are heard by a grand jury um, because there is no need for an indictment um, as in to give the higher court the ability and the jurisdiction to hear that case. Well, a prosecutor decides what charges are going to be presented to the grand jury. And the grand jury ultimately decides whether or not the 
higher court judge will hear that case, whether those charges will be dismissed or whether they'll be reduced. Well, you know, we hear, like I said, a lot of, uh, a lot of things about cases and people get very angry, but they don't understand the system. So there is a role for the prosecutor um, or your local prosecutor explaining that to you, what that process is and, and what your role is and what happens so that you don't feel like you're just lost within the criminal justice system. Our listeners should also know that, you know, prosecutors, and I want to say this in the best way possible, can also be accused reasonably of being objective. They're not always trying to throw people under the jail. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I mean, the reality is their, their ethical obligation is to seek justice. Will I say that I've never seen, you know, people who were concerned about getting another trial and, you know, getting another conviction and being able to say that they've had X amount of trials in their career. I've seen it. I'm, I'm not going to sit down and say that that doesn't happen. And there aren't attorneys out there who I say have lost sight of what the job really is and what their obligations really are. But I will say that I took great pride in being a prosecutor and also working, you know, for Dennis Dillon, who was a prosecutor at the time I was in the district attorney's office. I never felt pressured to do something unethical or unfair. Um, I always had supervisors who would listen to my opinion. And even if they disagreed, I never felt as if um, my point of view was minimized. And so it was a nurturing environment, you know, in the beginning stages of my professional career. And from the DA's office, where did you go in terms of work after doing the close to seven years? Interestingly enough, um, being a prosecutor gave me exposure to um, politics. I mean, my mom, I don't know how she found time, but she was a local committee person for one of the local political parties in the community. And so for many, many years, she had been involved in politics. And so I was exposed to it, you know, just seeing her and walking with her to get signatures so that candidates would be able to get on the ballot. Um, but I can't say that I ever envisioned myself becoming actively involved in politics to the extent of running for office. Um, in my head, I felt if I stayed in the district attorney's office for a long time, eventually one of the judges that I would appear before, if their law secretaries decided to run for judge, I would apply for those positions. And I saw um, the end of my career being a judge, a district court judge. God had a totally different plan as to what my life turned out to be. Um, so while I was in the district attorney's office working in county court, which is where felony cases are handled, um, some of the political people, some of the attorneys and others who were involved in politics, um, I was brought to their attention. They were looking for a candidate to run for county clerk. 
And that's why I left the district attorney's office in 2005 to run for the county clerk here in Nassau County. How was that process? Were you successful in running for that position? No. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I did well. I had a great team of people around me. Um, at the time, at the top of the ticket was um, former, former county exec, now Congressman Thomas Swazi. Um, so we ran uh, throughout Nassau County. I mean, it was a great experience learning how to campaign, what it is to meet people and talk about the issues. Um, becoming more familiar with the clerk's office, which is in essence the uh, care or the storehouse for court records. Um, so I learned um, what I learned a little bit about politics. I learned a lot about um, you know running in a political race, and while it brought me more so into the political world. Um, at the end of the election, I lost. As a matter of fact, of all of the top ticket candidates, I was the only one that lost. Um, and unfortunately, at the same time, my boss then, the Honorable Dennis Dillon, he also lost. So the safety net that I thought I had, because he had said to me, you know, if things don't work out, you could always come back to the office that disappeared because we both lost um but again like i said it, it it definitely led me to where god wanted me to be um after losing i had worked in the incorporated village of hempstead as a prosecutor there and then i had also uh worked for at the time uh county executive thomas swazi doing compliance work and the blessing in that is eventually he appointed me along with the legislature um, as a district court judge. And then subsequently I had to run that November in order to hold on to the seat. And thank God I, I did win. So what is compliance work as you describe it? Because you've, you've opened up prospective students to this wide array of options once one becomes an attorney? What is compliance work as you describe it? So compliance in essence is a review of internal controls. You know, you're looking at how operations are run. Um, you're looking at how cash is spent. Uh, you're looking for certain efficiencies within government, how things can become even more efficient. Um, compliance looked at um, some of the, I guess, rules, if you will, code of conduct within government. So, for example, one of the uh, bigger projects that I worked on while I was director of compliance was their ethics policy uh, to ensure that there were no conflicts of interest with the different vendors and contractors that the county work with. Um, setting guidelines and, and, and rules and standards for the county employees as well as their contractors. Um, we also worked on their travel policy because there were so many departments within Nassau County and a lot of the department heads had to do significant travel on county business, of course, 
And so the responsibility fell on the employees. And at the time we worked on uh, a program, if you will, to ensure that we were doing the best when it came to pricing and making sure that there was no abuse in terms of spending. Um, so those were two of the larger things. And then you just had some of the day-to-day -day operations, how you know, equipment is ordered. And you know, one of the things during the uh, Swazi administration that you know, he had worked significantly on and compliance had a role um, dealt with a buy-in from the local municipalities on state contracts. So for example, the state might have gotten um, a great deal, if you will, with say a travel agency. And, and then you say, well, can these local municipalities buy into that contract? Are they able to get the benefit without having to negotiate separately, which may result in less of a bargain because it is a smaller amount of business in comparison to say Nassau County versus say a smaller village. And so we worked on things you know, of that nature to help not just the county, but also to help other municipalities with their efficiencies, money saving, as well as you know, um, the integrity of some of these contracts. Because the reality is that you have some vendors that say, well, you know, if you're doing it in-house and depending on the process that you have to select um, a contractor, a vendor, some of the other companies that don't necessarily get the notifications are being, you know, kept out of business. And then, of course, if one village is working with, say, X vendor, the village over next, you know, the next village over may say, oh, well, you know, I'll do business with them. Um, but we were trying to do it in such a way that there was transparency, um, there was legitimacy to the process. And so I would say those are some of the things that a compliance department would do. And it was an interesting experience. Um, in that role, you know, we also had attorneys as well as auditors working with us in the department. So my legal knowledge was helpful, um, but I also had, you know, other support from the law department as well. So you're seeing how the city is run, the state, even you're learning more about municipalities. What was your title while you were doing compliance? What was your official title? I was... Um, director of compliance and then i answered to one of the deputy county attorneys who oversaw that department wow. is the opposite of compliance corruption or equity <laughs> i no it's I, I i mean could it be um corruption yeah i mean on a certain level it, it definitely has that potential i mean not necessarily on a, on a broad you know, basis. Um, but, you know, you think about it to say, maybe it's not intentional corruption, but I, you know what, let me, let me, let me, let me backtrack. Could it be the answer, short answer? Yes. Because if I'm always doing business with John's contracting, you know, when it comes to certain infrastructure projects within the county, and Mary can't 
get any contract or Mary doesn't even know that there's a project to compete for it, there can undoubtedly be corruption. Um, and that was one of the biggest um, issues. And, and, and I'd say that was a campaign um, priority for the county executive at the time, uh, you know, former county executive Tom Swazi. He was very much into end the corruption so that people can see a more transparent government and have more trust and faith and, and confidence in government. So, you know, he had a huge push with that. And I think that's how come our, our department um, was able to make the advances that we did because it was a huge priority for him. How long, how long in that role as director of compliance? Roughly two years. Two years. And then how did the district court position come about? So in the interim, you know, after running and losing, um, that put a little bug in me to say, you know what, you know, you, you have, you've learned something new, you have this skill, what do you do with it? And so, you know, there were times where I got involved in other people's campaigns, not, you know, on any uh, level of being part of their campaign team, just more so supporting and attending, you know, fundraisers and, you know, helping with literature distribution and stuff like that. So a little volunteering here and there. Um, but it also made me say, okay, now that I'm here, what am I going to do with this? You know? Um, and people were saying to me like, well, you're an attorney, so, you know, don't you want to run for judge? And I did, I mean, but I had only envisioned running for a judge later on in my career, but, you know, I was in an environment where people were very supportive, you know, at the time there were so many legislators, um, Roger Corbin, uh, Kavon Abrahams, Lizanne Altman, just so, there were so many um, political people and, and government people that I met who were just, you know, pushing and saying, you know, maybe you should put your, your name back in the hat again. Don't, you know, don't be so intimidated by the laws that it encouraged me to start interviewing with the party and asking them to consider allowing me to run, you know, after I lost. And fortunately, you know, I had the support of the county exec at the time, uh, Congressman Swazi, as well as Chairman Jacobs, as well as some of the legislators that I named and others. And so I did, and, and also many of the civic people, the community members, um, you know, that had a voice and made sure that their voices were heard. Um, with all of that support, thankfully, it worked out that I ran in 08. And that's, that was when I started my first term as a district court judge. How long is the term usually for district Six court years. judges? Six years. Um, so you mentioned the support of many civic leaders and political leaders. How was the faith community with supporting your political endeavors? Because I know there's an uneasy tension with most faith communities and politics. You know, I, it's so funny. I mean, I think back to when I was a kid and, and when I had voiced the fact that I wanted to be an attorney. And I remember um, an aunt that I had, she passed on, 
Um, she was a cousin, but because she was so old, you know, we referred to her as an aunt as a matter of respect. You have to call them auntie, man. Right. Same here. You can't say cousin, auntie. No. <laughs> you're not my and mother's sister. You're not my dad's sister, but I'm calling you auntie because right. you're older. <laughs> exactly. And I'll never forget, you know, and this is even before, but no, I think it was right when I was going to law school or maybe I had just started law school and she was like the Lord does not agree with you becoming an attorney. And I was like, you know, like, what? I mean, like, she didn't say it that way, but in essence, that's really what she was saying to me. She, lawyers are liars, and in the Bible, it says that you should take your problems to the priest to have it resolved that way. No and court thing. No, no court. court. So it was like, you know, I, I, later on, as I, you know, learned my Bible more, you know, Deborah was a judge, so, you know, there's biblical support for what I do. Um, you know, but I had, that was like my introduction to the conservative voice of the Adventist church, you know, and I am a lifelong Adventist, um, baptized as a kid. And I wasn't surprised when I ran or when I was running for county clerk, that there was a cold reception, you know, outside of, you know, the supportive people at Hempstead church, you know. I can say wholeheartedly that throughout my years at Hempstead SDA, you know, as my career continued, um, you know, I've had pastors who, you know, have been praying for me and elders um, and church members, and some would attend fundraisers, which I know under normal circumstances, they never would have attended, but because, you know, they cared for me individually, um, they show their support, and I'm so thankful. Um, I was recently honored by the Criminal Courts Bar Association here in Nassau County, and I want to say half of the room, if not two-thirds of the room, were my church family. So, you know, it, it, it's been an amazing experience. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, they, they were laughing because they said this that year was the largest turnout that they ever had at their dinners. And I, you know, my response was, all you got to do is call the church bus, you know, because the members, and it was a horrible, I'll never forget, it was a horrible night. You know, some of my relatives, they came from Connecticut and they drove from upstate New York. Um, as a matter of fact, some of the Holmes family, the Holmes sisters, they, you know, they drove through this horrible weather, um, and my cousins, the Everins, they, they also drove in some horrible weather, but the church bus plowed through and made it to this dinner. So, you know, I'm very thankful that, you know, I can say while as a denomination, you know, we're still very hesitant to uh, deal with government. You know, my church family has, has truly been amazing, you know, for me. How many terms as district court judge have you done? How many terms did you do? I have completed two terms and- awesome. congratulations. Thank God after today, it'll be, well, later on today when things are finalized with the elections, I'll be going into my third term, January, 2021. So listeners should know that this is being recorded on November 3rd, the day of our national election. So yeah. congratulations, Judge Farrell, on 
Thank your you. appointment to district court judge. That's awesome. And I think we should use this opportunity to, I think you can speak to the importance of local involvement in local political uh, activities. You can speak to that better than most. Well, for the judges here in Nassau County in the criminal justice system, district court is the lower level court, and then you have county court, as well as the family court, Supreme Court, and the matrimonial center. These are elected positions. So our terms are different, um, and there might be a midterm appointment, but even in the instance where there is a midterm appointment, you still have to run for that seat the November of the year that you were appointed. And if you're successful, then you will be able to complete a full term. So going back to 2008, I was appointed that March as a district court judge um, by the county executive and the legislature. However, I had to run that year in order to remain a district court judge and to serve a full six-year term. And so whether I'm looking for a re-election to that particular seat or I'm looking for higher office, it's an elected position. And it is so important for people to vote and to pay attention to these local races while I would never minimize the presidency or the federal um, you know, lawmakers, you also have your mayor, your governor, your senator, your assembly person, your judges, and these are elected positions. So I am a huge proponent of voting. Um, and also, you know, we don't pay attention to your fire chief your library trustees. These are also other races, your school board races, school board members. Again, local politics. And we have to pay attention because they affect our day-to-day -day more so than what you'll hear about in Washington. And I think both are important to focus on. Um, so when I think about even what I do as a district court judge, it is more likely you're going to meet me before you will ever meet the president of the United States, just based on either you having been a victim of a crime or you being charged with a crime. And you wanna know who is sitting in there. What is their background? Are they qualified? Are they experienced? What's their judicial temperament? What can I expect? And that is what goes into you know your dis or should go into your decision making process and you can you know just even consider some of those things for any of the other positions that i named and it's just vital i mean i can't say enough that people need to vote all the time not just every four years vote all the time because there's always some political race going on i mean although my race is every six years you know, the assembly people are town council every two years, town supervisor every two years. So you really have to stay on top of it because while I may be dealing with your rights and that's extremely important, 
some of these other positions are dealing with your tax dollars. And that's also important. They're, they're molding what the school district looks like and how it's run and who's hired, who's teaching your children. And whoever's at the helm plays a significant role in what happens to your child's day-to-day -day education. So, you know, please vote. Please vote all the time. Don't just do it when it's, you know, contentious race that's being shoved down your throat every day in the news. Do it when it's not even, you know, much ado about anything. And many of these local, you know, politicians don't even have enough money to put a sign out. Just pay attention and take your civic responsibility seriously. I think we use a district attorney example and we were saying what what was unfair to you in terms of how you know district attorneys were viewed um could we address the same issue for judges what is <laughs> what what are unfair assessments made about district court judges in particular well, who handle I mean, criminal cases I, because I, you know, every, my every day is criminal law. Um, there are times that I have handled civil cases and small claims. We also have civil parts um, in the district court. We have landlord tenant in district court. Um, but as I mentioned, my day to day is criminal law. And, you know, I do hear a lot of the criticisms that come into play. Oh, you know, the, the judges are just as biased as the prosecutors. Um, the judges work hand in hand with the police and the prosecutors. You know, defendants, anyone accused of a crime, they don't stand a fair chance. There's already an immediate bias that they did something wrong because they have been arrested. Um, you know, or it's just an overall distrust. And I know I it's it's an unfair assessment, but I do understand. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, I'm here in the community. So people that are coming in and out of the criminal justice system are very accessible when it comes to, you know, talking to people, um, living with people, worshiping with people. You know, sometimes we don't want to talk about that, but people at church get arrested too. You know, you get to hear a lot of the contention and i mean it's a blessing and sometimes it can also uh be somewhat of a burden being so accessible because people don't mind when they know i got your ear i'm gonna see you at the school board meeting and by the way let me tell you you know and we do have you know ethical limits as to what we can discuss so it's not a matter of me being able to sit down. I cannot give you legal advice. I cannot practice law as a judge. If you even have the ability to get it out before I stop you about your case, I will never be able to sit on your case. If there's even the appearance of a bias, I will not sit on your case. Um, but with all that being said, I'm still close enough to the pulse of the community to be able to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly about, you know, what people think about the courts. And I can honestly say that it's helped to mold me to become the judge that I am. You know, I want people that when they come in my courtroom, they understand what's happening. They don't feel like they're being rushed through, you know, like a 10 items or less grocery line. If they have questions, you know, there are times where the attorneys 
And, and I think they're well-meaning and they'll say to their clients, you know, no, no, the judge doesn't have time for that. I'll explain it to you later. Um, I am one that is very much known for saying, wait a second, what is it that you want to communicate to me? And I always warn them, speak to your attorney first before you say something to me. I don't want you to incriminate yourself, but I don't want someone feeling like they just got run over by the entire criminal justice system because the judge is viewed as a large part of it. I mean, even though there are so many um, components, if you will, to a criminal case, starting with the arrest and, and what takes place on the street, at the precinct, before you get to the arraignment, and what happens at the arraignment, and how custody is determined, and then we move forward to the case. What's the assessment? Who's looking at the you know, facts of the case and weighing the evidence and making a plea offer and whether there'll be a plea offer and whether you should even want to accept the plea offer. You know, there are so many parts or so many components to a criminal case. Um, but with all of that being said, you know, whatever part that I have in being able to allow you to understand it better, I do. You know, I take the time and I'm always a huge, um, I guess, proponent of legal counsel and not just you know to say to somebody get a lawyer ask questions of your lawyer think about yourself as co-counsel how can you assist your attorney to best represent you and to best defend you you know or protect your interests because while you know a judge gets information from both sides you know, prior to that point, if I don't feel empowered as a client, I may not be telling my attorney everything so that he or she could even present this information, whether it be as evidence or even as a defense. Um, and so I want people to be as aware and as informed and as educated as possible when they come before me. And I think that by, you know, the positive and the negative criticisms that take place it helps me do what i need to do better excellent points and judge farrell you know i go back between uh, trisha and your your title um any final words you had an incredible journey a real compelling story humble beginnings to where you are now and i'm sure you had a lot of pinch myself moments when you, I mean, seeing where God has brought you. Could you just speak to faithfulness and what God is able to do even with our humble beginnings and missteps and challenges and setbacks in closing? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity because I do see um, my profession as part of my ministry. Um, God has really done some amazing things in my life. And, you know, when I think about, you know, my family and the humble beginnings where my parents, you know, they didn't come from families of any great means, but they love God, they serve God, and he was able to provide for them in an amazing way. Um, it led to their ability to plant those seeds, you know, in me as well as in my siblings. You know, one of the things that I think about, you know, over the years is that, 
you know, just as I always had that dream of being an attorney, you know, my parents supported that. And so even though my dad passed away when I was very young, he knew his daughter was going to be an attorney. And he always, you know, made education. Um, it, it wasn't. question of whether or not I was going to go to school, it was always a matter of what school were you going to? And, you know, at one point, my mother, my sister and myself, we all graduated. My mom had gone back to school um, doing psychology. Um, my sister was in school for education and I was in law school. And it was just an amazing thing to see all of us, you know, being faithful, you know, holding on, being vigilant, and, you know, using that perseverance to get through, you know, the various stages of education that we were at. Um, and that's all God. That was all God. And as much as I said, I would never do because I, I look back and I mean, this is serving as a criminal court judge. And I think back to being that young, you know, student straight out of law school, like I will never do criminal law. But God said, yeah, all right. You know, oftentimes, you know, people say you want to make God laugh, have plans and tell him about it. But, you know, I can see his hand in every way. Um, and even in politics, I mean, you know, I spoke of the positive experiences, you know, there were challenges that I faced. I remember, you know, going into the courthouse and there were people questioning, can she cut it? You know, she's not politically connected. She's not an old woman. Because let's face it, when you think judge, you definitely don't think young black woman. So I didn't meet that criteria at all. And you know, I, I even had colleagues that had the audacity to speak of, you know, she wasn't that great as a prosecutor, but God saw something different. God saw something different. And it was amazing for me to be recognized by my peers in such a way um, to say, this is where God can take you. Just trust in him. So, you know, especially to the young people or to anybody who has a dream, has a passion inside of them, and they just know this is where God wants them. And no matter how difficult it may be, how challenging you know it could be, just hold on to your faith, say your prayers, and God will work it out. He does some amazing things that even now, um, you know, I, I I sit down and I'm thinking, my third term in a job that I felt would be you know, my dream job and a job I'd be retiring from. But he's still got a plan, so I'm so thankful. Trisha, congrats on everything. Thank you so much for the words of inspiration you shared throughout, transparent about your own journey. And I appreciate it so much, and I know listeners will engage and be inspired by what you shared. Um, this afternoon. Thank you so much for your willingness and thank you as always for your kindness and I appreciate your being on the Waterword podcast.
thank you. Thank you so much for this great opportunity. I hope that it'll be a blessing to someone and encourage someone. It will. So it thank will. You. Thank you so much. I want our young people to know that they matter, that they belong. So don't be afraid. You hear me? Young people, don't be afraid. Be focused. <laughs> be determined. Be hopeful. Be empowered. Empower yourselves with a good education. Then get out there and use that education to build a country worthy of your boundless promise. Lead by example with hope, never fear. Our greatness has never, ever come from sitting back and feeling entitled to what we have. It's never come from folks who climb the ladder of success or who happen to be born near the top and then pull the ladder up after themselves. No, uh-uh. Our greatness has always come from people who expect nothing and take nothing for granted. Folks who work hard for what they have then reach back and help others after them. Success isn't about how your life looks to others. It's about how it feels to you. We realize that being successful isn't about being impressive. It's about being inspired. And, and, and that's what it means to be your true self. It means looking inside yourself and being honest about what you truly enjoy doing because graduates, I can promise you that you will never be happy plodding through someone else's idea of success. Success is only meaningful and enjoyable if it feels like your own. You should never view your challenges as a disadvantage. Instead, it's important for you to understand that your experience facing and overcoming adversity is actually one of your biggest advantages. And I know that because I've seen it myself, not just as a student working my way through school, but years later, when I be, after I came, before I came to the White House and I worked as a dean at a college, in that role, I encountered students who had every advantage. Their parents paid their full tuition, they lived in beautiful campus dorms, they had every material possession a college kid could want, cars, computers, spending money. But when some of them got their first bad grade, they just fell apart. <laughs> they lost it because they were ill-equipped to handle their first encounter with disappointment or falling short. But graduates, as you all know, <laughs> life will put many obstacles in your path that are far worse than a bad grade. You'll, you'll have unreasonable bosses and difficult clients and patients You'll experience illnesses and losses, crises and setbacks that will come out of nowhere and knock you off your feet. But unlike so many other young people, you have already developed the resilience and the maturity that you need to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and keep moving through the pain. Keep moving forward.